Turn with me, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 in your scriptures tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Begin reading at verse 15, and I'll read into the second chapter. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Again, let me begin at verse 15. Let us hear now God's word. Because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes, and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, Our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He appointed us set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you, For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you, that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Amen. We'll end our reading there, and let's ask for God's help once more. Father in heaven, again, as we always pray, when we do it every time because we confess without you we can do nothing, but we love your word and we just long to hear it and to understand it and for you to feed our souls and to build up our faith and and to shape us into the image of Christ and to deploy us as your agents in this world to reflect your image and to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to serve and to love and to give glory to you in worship and in praise and in how we live. So may this time of worship tonight contribute to that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we ended with verses 12 through 14, where Paul defends his integrity as a minister. You see, his conscience assures him that he has conducted himself in his relationship with the Corinthians with integrity and godly sincerity. He has related to them not in a worldly manner, not like the way uh, other philosophers or teachers in his age uh, might relate as basically teachers for hire who will tell you good things if the price is right. No, he's related to them in a way of integrity, according to the pattern of Christ. And so not only does Paul's own conscience defend him, but he can appeal to the people. You've seen what I was like with you. You should be able to testify to my integrity based on your experience with me. So why this rift? Why these accusations? Why this trouble? 
And not only has Paul conducted himself in integrity when dealing with them in person, but also in his written communications. There's no hidden messages. He's not, they don't need to read between the lines. He's not trying to say something without saying it. He's direct with his speech and his writing. And so the Corinthians should be as proud of Paul as he as is of them. He loves them. They're his trophy, his crown in the Lord, and he wants them to think of him in the same way. So in the next section, beginning with the verses we've read tonight, Paul moves from defending his integrity in general to defending it in a specific instance. Why he changed previously announced travel plans. That change has caused some among the Corinthians to question his dependability. But not only does Paul give concrete explanations for his behavior, he can say, look, this is what happened. But he also appeals to God's integrity in the gospel and Paul's attempt to emulate, to imitate that integrity in his dealings with the Corinthians. So maybe you picked up on it as we read tonight. The the passage weaves back and forth between specific circumstances and overriding theological ideas. Between Paul just telling them, look, here's what happened, but then Paul also saying something about, and here's who God is, and here's how the gospel works. Those two connect as a defense of his integrity. And, and we'll speak to the idea of, is, okay, is he just trying to stand behind God as a shield you know, for maybe less than uh, good actions? I think we'll see the way these two relate in a manner that is sincere. So let's use this passage then to get an idea not only of what's going on among Paul and the Corinthians, but an an idea of how we can conduct ourselves with one another, how we can process our disappointment when people don't do what we expect them to do, and how the gospel informs all of this. This passage speaks to these ideas by having us consider why Paul changed his travel plans. So let's look at that under two headings. First, Paul's original plans, which he refers to in verses 15 through 16. He tells the Corinthians that he intended to visit them twice, once on his way to Macedonia, and then as he returned from Macedonia en route to Judea. If you remember the map I handed out a few weeks ago, or if you were to check the map in the back of your Bible, the idea we get is that Paul was going to sail west across the sea and go to Corinth first, And then he would go up from Corinth into the area of Macedonia, those churches such as the Thessalonians and Philippi, those other uh, churches there. He would hit Corinth first, head north, and then return back the same way, hit Corinth a second time, and then sail for Judea, delivering the offering that we've referred to a few times. And notice Paul tells them, if I had done that, you would have benefited twice. We would have had two times with one another to share in one life with one another, to, to build one another up spiritually. And I also think he's probably hinting at them, you would have had two opportunities to give to this offering to the Judeans. Paul will refer to it later in Second Corinthians, but we talked about it there towards the end of Romans. If Paul can take an offering from Gentile Christians to poor Jews in Jerusalem, some of whom are believers and some of whom are not, that will do great things to show the unity of the church, how God can bring these nationalities together. 
and how the gospel can cross all those lines in the mercy of God. So Paul wants them to participate in the offering. It's a big deal. However, this double visit never happened. In order to fit this change of plans into the larger picture of Paul's interactions with the Corinthians, let me summarize just once again Paul's visits and his letters to the Corinthians. And this will be a little shorter than the first list I gave you. Just a summary. In A.D. probably 53, sometime in the summer or moving into the fall, Paul is working in Ephesus. He spent about three years there. And he sends the Corinthians the first letter. They've already been established as a church. And he sends them 1 Corinthians. And he tells them that he will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, later in the year, And then he will see the Corinthians after traveling through Macedonia. He's going to leave Ephesus, he's going to go to Macedonia, and then he will see the Corinthians. So probably see them the following year. And he hopes to stay with them for several months and take up a collection for the people in Jerusalem. Paul told them this at the end of 1 Corinthians. However, in the spring of the following year, Timothy visited Corinth. And he tells Paul, you know, the church has just not responded well to the letter you sent them. So Paul makes an immediate visit to Corinth, and that visit does not go well. Maybe you notice as we read into chapter 2, Paul referring to a sorrowful visit. And not wanting to visit again, lest it cause them pain. Apparently, when Paul visited the Corinthians and tried to solve some of these problems, now now again, we get this a little bit from, from trying to reconstruct from what he writes, but we get this idea that someone in the congregation mistreated Paul, and that person was supported by a faction in the congregation, and the rest of the people did nothing about it. We'll get into some of that next week where Paul talks about, you know, I forgive this person. There's a punishment inflicted on him by the majority. So that tells us that when Paul visited on a previous time, somebody did him wrong and a minority backed him and the rest of the people did nothing. And so it was a painful visit for Paul. And we may, it may be then that during that visit, Paul communicated this plan. Hey, I'm going to come back. And when I come back, I'll even visit you twice. But once Paul is home in Ephesians, he sends the Corinthians a painful letter. He's got to address the problems from this visit, especially the way they poorly handled the mistreatment. And it may be that in that letter, this is one of those letters he refers to but hasn't survived. It may be that in that letter he told them, you know what, I'm actually not going to visit you until these problems have been resolved. Again, as he says in this letter, I don't want to make another sorrowful visit. This letter will have to substitute for the visit. And that did not sit well with the Corinthians. Rather than seeing that they needed to work some things out and that there was an opportunity to do so, they instead questioned his integrity. And they communicated this question to Titus when Titus visits the Corinthians. This is referred to in 2 Corinthians 7. And so Titus reports this to Paul in Macedonia not long before Paul writes 2 Corinthians. That, hey, they're not happy with you for not making this visit. But here's the other thing you got to understand. This is why Corinthians kind of weaves back and forth between positive and negative here in 2 Corinthians. Titus also reports 
that they did address the problem of Paul's mistreatment and that they have received Titus well. So they dealt with the problem, but they're also not very happy that Paul has not come to see them. And so Paul, therefore, has to defend his change in travel plans. He's got to explain why he did it and show that it didn't arise from a lack of integrity. So let's come now then to that second angle tonight. Let's look at what reasons he gives for this change in plans. The second heading then is Paul's explanation for his change. And he gives here in this passage three reasons or three defenses for this change in plans. First, just a general defense. Here in verse 17, was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes, and no, no? One commentator writes, Paul is being accused of a fleshly, self-centered sort of waffling by which his plans changed according to his personal whims. The Corinthians are looking at this as, you're not committed. Uh, we might say wishy-washy. You know, you, you said you'd do one thing and you'd done another. You must not really care for us. And what's interesting about this charge of being fickle, we find Jewish writings that look down on this. We find Christians that, that don't look very highly upon those who are fickle. We also find that this is a value in the broader society, just Greco-Roman society as a whole, not informed by the Bible or New Testaments. They look down on people who were fickle. So the charge of fickleness is a big deal. It's kind of the thing that everybody would say, oh, you lack character if you are a wishy-washy person. So Paul denies that he's being fickle. He said, I, I didn't make those plans lightly. I wasn't just saying, oh, yeah, maybe I'll do that, maybe I won't, just if I feel like it, I'll come through on what I promised to do. In fact, the very form of Paul's question expects a negative answer. We could phrase it as, certainly you don't think I was being fickle when I made these plans. You know, with the result would be, if, if I was a fickle person, you know, the result would be that I make my plans in a worldly manner. You know, that that's the kind of person I am. You know, if I was worldly, I, I would say yes and no in the same breath. You know, emphatically, absolutely, or no way, and kind of both of them at the same time. And Paul just simply says, hey, that's not who I am. And that echoes what Paul said back there in verses 12 through 14. And it anticipates a more specific reason that he will give when we get to verse 23. Paul will soon tell them why he changed his mind, that it was for their sake, to spare them further pain. He had made plans for their benefit, and so he changed his plans for their benefit. But he will get into all that in just a minute. For now, he's just saying, hey, look, that's not who I am. Before God, and as you know, that is not the kind of person I am. So that's a general defense. Now he gives a theological defense. And this is what we're going to see. He, he kind of shifts from talking details to suddenly being general in talking about theology. How do these two hold together? Let's look at that. Verse 18, he says, But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. All right, so this is the big idea, that the main thing he wants them to understand, that he is trying to be faithful 
as God is faithful. When he says, as surely as, that's the language of oath. It's almost as if Paul is ready to make a promise or swear an oath. What do you know about God and the gospel, Paul says? You know that they are not fickle. And so Paul is saying, look, I am a representative of that faithfulness. I strive to be faithful in my conduct with you because I'm representing the faithful God who has given us the faithful gospel. And so I would not therefore act in a fickle manner. Again, one author writes, Paul suggests that his personal faithfulness stands grounded in the very faithfulness of God. Paul focuses his defense on God's faithfulness to the gospel rather than Paul's own person. And as I said a moment ago, is Paul just trying to stand behind God as a shield? Hey, I'm a minister. Don't question me. Of course I do everything right. I don't th- I'm not reading him so cynically there. I'm reading him there saying, look, this is the example I'm trying to follow. And so, no, I, I wouldn't act towards you in a fickle manner because that would reflect poorly on the God I serve. And so that's my conscience, and I think he could appeal to them. He's had many interactions in the past to say, you've seen me before. Which is the true Paul here? Which is the one you know? The one who tries to act in integrity. So he makes this claim and is ready to swear this oath. Let's look at how the idea develops here in verses 19 and 20. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, But in him, it has always been yes. So so what do we learn from the gospel? We learn from the gospel that Christ is the assurance that we can be saved from the devastating power of sin. That God has sent an answer into the world to rescue us from sin's penalty, to rescue us from sin's power, to remake God's creation. Christ is the assurance of the reliability of that plan. But not only that, verse 20, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Not only is Christ the assurance that we can be saved, but through Christ we realize that every one of God's promises will find their answer in Jesus. And again, why? Because Christ is faithful. He's the faithful Israelite. He's faithful to God's law. He draws up all of the Old Testament history in himself and does it faithfully. And then he draws all the penalty and power of sin onto himself, the unfaithfulness of others, and bears that burden and pays that price. So Christ is the assurance that all of God's promises are true and will find their amen. Now again, all that's staked and grounded in the resurrection or else we would not have the assurance that such things are true. And furthermore, of course, we get a little hint, don't we, here of how Paul's reading his Old Testament as one big story bearing witness to Christ grounded in his faithfulness. And because of Christ's faithfulness, then we have this wonderful phrase, through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God, a little window into the worship of the early church that perhaps the scriptures would be read or praise would be offered to Christ, to God, and the congregation would confirm this. They would say the Amen, answering probably as a unity. And of course, the Amen or Amen, as we often say, it's actually a a transliteration of a Hebrew word. They took the Hebrew letters and brought them into English 
and we get the word amen. It just functioned as an affirmation. God is faithful. This is true. And so the congregation with one voice would speak this in response to the gospel. So again, like I said last week, don't just listen to what Paul says. Listen to what he's doing with what he says. He's trying to say that if, if this is the gospel I preach to you, that God is faithful through Christ, then just know that I would strive to offer that same faithfulness. And just as when God's promises are read and you say amen, just know that I am trying to function in the same way. And so as the congregation worships with unity when they say the amen, then let's find unity once again with one another in the gospel. And all of these ideas then are just reinforced in verses 21 and 22. How does God show us his faithfulness in the gospel? Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Paul is saying, my integrity is consistent with what you have experienced in the gospel. How has God shown you his faithfulness in the gospel? He's made you firm. That's the main idea there in those two ideas. He has made you firm. And how? Because he's anointed you. He's sealed you with the Spirit. He's given you this Spirit as a deposit. Just as Christ is the anointed one, that's what the very word means, not not his last name, it just means anointed one. Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the anointed one. In him, he's anointed you with his Spirit. So just as you anoint people for office, so the Spirit has anointed you. He's enabled you to do what God has called you to do. And Paul is just trying to remind the Corinthians, you heard this gospel from me. This gospel has worked in your lives. And so the gospel has integrity. That's the foundation. That's the objective thing. But Paul has striven to have that same integrity in his interactions with them. When he first served the gospel to them, he did it in a manner that had integrity, and that has not changed. Yes, he changed his plans, but who he is and who the gospel is have not changed. So Corinthians, you can read my change in plans in a multitude of ways, but don't read them as a lack of integrity. That would be an error of judgment. And so Paul defends the, his integrity here again in order to uphold the integrity of the gospel. Paul knows that if he misrepresents the gospel, that does damage to the gospel. So he makes the appeal that he sought to live in a way that's faithful. So that's his theological defense. And then lastly, let's look at tonight at his specific defense. We'll just wade into this, but, but he, he gives us the big idea here at the very beginning. He says in verse 23, I call God as my witness, I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Why did Paul change his plans? Because the problem wasn't yet resolved as far as he knew. He'll later get news that it has been. But he didn't know that at the time. And so he did not want to visit them and cause the Corinthians and himself further emotional pain 
Paul's last visit to the Corinthians was painful. And so was the letter that he writes. And when Paul thinks about his relationship with the church, the goal is that it should produce joy, not sadness. And so he's trying to think strategically, how can I move this relationship out of its current relational rut? I've got to move things to a better place. And so Paul makes a judgment call. I think if I visit and do that double visit, that's probably going to do more harm than good. So for the sake of the good of the church and the relationship with it, he says, I'll postpone that visit. And you can see here in the, in the words that he speaks, especially verse 24, not that we lord it over your faith. The, the idea there isn't just to feed some sense of authority. The, the, the situation has broken his heart. And so he wants to restore the love between these two parties. And notice the, some of the language uh, that he uses there. Again, verse 23, I call God as my witness. In other words, I, I'm willing to let God take the witness stand and testify to whether or not I'm telling you the truth. And I offer my life as the cost if I'm lying. Again, I change my plans to avoid a painful visit. I mean, it's very interesting. He he goes and the church wrongs him. He's going to talk about these things later in the letter, about the correction that should have been done. But in this instance, he says, I did not want to go and confront you. I did not want to go and discipline those who did wrong. And again, he'll warn towards the end of the letter about the possibility of that kind of confrontation. So, so Paul is not unwilling to do the hard, awful work of discipline. But in this instance, he judged it unwise. He said, if I press into it at this time, it will do more harm than good. I will not pursue that course right now. And why? What what value may have informed that ministry decision? Because one of Paul's ministry values is not to dominate over people. Verse 24, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith that you stand firm. That phrase, lord it over, it's used in other literature to refer to military leaders or kings who make land grabs or or property or or person. They're in charge, and so they take what they want. And and, and the phrase is frequently used in in contexts involving punishment. Those who are in power will punish those who are under them. And Paul says, that's not what I'm like. That is not one of my ministry values. And of course, he's echoing the teaching of Christ here in Luke 22, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that, Jesus told his disciples. Paul's approach is to be gracious, to be paternal, not not in a condescending way, but to care for them the way a father cares for his children. He's their father spiritually, so to speak. He wants to continue to nurture their faith. And I think, by the way, that's a little jab at the false teachers who he'll go on to later say are exploiting you. Who's the real teacher who cares for you versus those who exploit them? So domination, authority, being in charge, lording it over people, those are not Paul's values. Rather, his goal for the Corinthians is not fear, not enslavement, but as he says, joy. 
And so I love what Paul does here because on the one hand, he defends himself and he uses the gospel as a measure for his integrity. But at the end of the day, he also commits to the people, hey, you, you judge. You know, you, you want to know what the quality of a ministry is? You want to know what the authenticity of a ministry is? You'll know it's by its fruits. As Jesus says, you will know them by their fruits. What kind of effect is my ministry having on you? Is it producing fear and bondage or faith and joy? And Paul says, if I'm rightly relating to God, and if you're rightly relating to God, if we're rightly relating to one another, then it's going to be an experience of joy. So what do we take away from tonight? Friends, we we would invite you to ask the question, what is our ministry producing in you? It should produce joy. And if it's not, let's talk. Let's hear that. Let's know how we can better administer the gospel. And a good question for all of us to ask ourselves at all times is how are we treating one another? in the work of the gospel. Because Paul tells us to aim for grace, aim for joy, aim for forgiveness, aim for acceptance, and that will lead to the building up and the spiritual maturity and the spiritual flourishing of Christ's church. So let's pray to that end, friends. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you so much for a very uh, open look at the life of Paul and the Corinthians. Lord, help us as pastors and elders, as deacons and as brothers and sisters in the Lord to conduct ourselves with all faithfulness in administering the gospel. And Lord, forgive us of our sins and when we fail. And Lord, create within this body an an ever-increasing sense of love, of unity, of joy, that the ministry of the gospel, and especially as it's expressed in the local church, would be one that produces faith and joy among your people. Again, forgive us when we've done that wrong, whether it's this church or our sister churches. Lord, forgive us and reform us by your word and revive us by your spirit and show mercy upon us and grant that we will be fruitful and joyful for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. And we know that you're sufficient for it. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's sing in closing tonight. Hymn 484, I Hear Thy Welcome voice in 484 let's sing verses 1 2 and 5 484 1 2 and 5 stand with me please